Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you doing? Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey. Bobby. He- hello. <laughs> Today's show is the next in the series on intern questions, and Hannah's going to walk us through a question that came up in the first part of her intern year. Guys, that is no longer true. I'm no longer in the first part of my intern year. <laughs> That means you're closer to Wild. being a, a second year resident than you are to being a medical student. Well, let's not go that far. Um, <laughs> but I will say, it. you know, fascinatingly, the intern questions have kept coming. Somehow I haven't run out of questions. Um, so just to introduce the series again, usually when we're sort of like thinking about a, a question to share on the podcast, we really want to have like Tony, you on average go through about 60 papers, I think, per tutorial or per podcast episode. And sometimes that like really leads us to questions that don't have great answers in the literature. So these intern questions are the idea is to have shorter episodes that just go after a random question that came up during my intern year and walk through what available evidence there is and why I thought it was interesting. So tonight's question is one that has a relatively limited body of available literature because it was first described in 2014. But it's one that helped me think about a diagnosis and also got me thinking about physiology in some fun ways. So tonight's question is, why does bendopnea occur? All right. So we're going to have to uh, talk about both what is bendopnea and and also, obviously, we're going to be very interested in why this specific question. And we're sure we're sure it's not bendopenia. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say bendopenia many, many times tonight. Yeah. Um, so... Again, yeah, definitely the first question here is, is bendopnea a word that I made up? And I am going to argue that the answer is no, and I have citations to back it up. Uh, So the, the story goes that I was admitting a patient overnight, and this patient told me a story, like, you ever get a story from a patient, and you're like, you sound like you just gave me a textbook description of something. And this patient described to me that every time they bent down to tie their shoes, they would get short of breath. They would not get short of breath at any other times. It was just when they bent down to tie their shoes and then go on a several mile walk. So it's not like they had dyspnea on exertion, but every time they bent down to put put on their socks. And I heard that and it was probably like eight or 9 p.m. on an admitting night. And I was like, that sounds like something, but I don't know what (laughs) bell it's actually ringing. Um, And somewhere around 2 a.m., I remembered that the word bendopnea, I had been said to me at some point. I was like, I think that's it. Um, And by morning, I was defending to the team who did not believe me that it was a real word, that my patient had bendopnea. (laughs) So somebody had taught you the term bendopnea at some point in your training. Does it have like a a formal definition that we can refer to here? Yeah. I think um, what had actually happened is that like one of my co-interns who wants to do cardiology had mentioned it at some point. And I was like, wow, that sounds interesting. And um, then it just settled in a crevice of my mind. Uh, So what is bendopnea? It does actually have a formal definition. It is shortness of breath in the first 30 seconds while someone is bending forward. So it's first described in patients who are short of breath with tying their shoes, although clearly the definition can be expanded in my patient to include also putting on their socks. All right. So you bend over and sometime within the first 30 seconds, you begin to feel shortness of breath. And if you've got that, you've got bendopnea. But why does this happen? Right. So this is this is where some of the initial papers describing this are incredible. So it was first described in a case series. They did TTEs of three patients and five office staff members. 
And they found a rise in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure sort of with the bending. And so that's why, what they hypothesized. The next study, they took 102 patients with EF less than 40% and took about half of them. They did sitting and bending measurements during right heart cath. So they somehow like they, they essentially pre-mapped out where the patient would be, something with pressure transducers. The method section was extremely long, and it seemed like a very impressive effort to get essentially hemodynamic monitoring of these patients, accurate measurements of right atrial pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, while these patients were supine, then went to a chair, and then bent forward as if they were tying their shoes. And clinically, the diagnosis is made They ask patients to sit forward and bend at the waist as though they're tying their shoes. And they say, tell me when you feel short of breath. And if it's less than 30 seconds, that's bendopnea. So Hannah, can you say a little bit more about um, the patients who had bendopnea? Like what, what were some of the characteristics? Right. So they took about 50 people and they did these dynamic measurements. So they looked at their pressures while they were sitting up and then while they were bending over. And about 16 people in the group that had these both sets of measures done had bendopnea and 30 people in the overall group. So about 15% in both. And specifically, they found, so they kind of categorized everyone into what we think about as like warm and dry, warm and wet, cold and dry, cold and wet. And when we think about sort of someone with heart failure, um, and they found that disproportionately, the group of people who had bendopnea were in that high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure group with a low cardiac index, so cold and wet. They found that all of the patients had a rise in their right atrial pressure and wedge pressure that was about equal, so that in everybody, when they bent over, they had a rise in their right atrial pressures and their pulmonary capillary wedge pressures, which reflects the left atrial pressure. But bendopnea occurred specifically in the patients who were already cold and wet. And what they also found is that orthopnea was about two times more common in patients with bendopnea. And so they proposed that there might be some shared pathophysiology of elevated filling pressures. What they did not see was a drop in cardiac index with bending over. So this doesn't reflect something that's causing the cardiac index to drop, but rather these patients already have a low cardiac index. So the, the big change is that, the, that when they bend over, the wedge pressure is going up. Their LVEDP is going up. Exactly. Okay. And it seems like if we're isolating the high wedge pressure, low cardiac index group, the cold, so-called cold and wet heart failure group, those are the thought of as the most advanced heart failure patients generally. And so why are pressures rising when bending over specifically in that group? And it's so the pressures rise in everybody. The Mm. question is how much do you essentially become symptomatic with it? And why do pressures rise just when people bend over? That's sort of an interesting question. So besides the obvious that when you bend over, there is more gravity and more body pressing on your thorax, it actually doesn't. Interestingly, the symptoms of bendopnea neither correspond with abdominal girth nor with BMI. And originally, there was some thought, well, maybe these patients with sort of decompensated heart failure have some portal congestion um, and then have hepatomegaly from it. They've actually been able to compare, later studies have compared patients with hepatomegaly versus not, and it doesn't actually uh, affect bendopnea. So there's some thought that maybe essentially like 
it, it's sort of used to the abdominal pressure actually increases your preload. Um, and it's almost like differentiating a hoka murmur in that you're sort of increasing your preload even more and bringing out that physiology. Yeah, I mean, you also have to wonder, there is a lot of venous capacitance in the splanchnic vessels. And so you could imagine that if you bend over, just as you said, the, the venous return is going to increase just by virtue of the alteration of the gravity and the, the that affecting the blood that would otherwise be pooling in the splanchnic uh, vessels and maybe shunting them to the right atrium. Yes, totally. So this is that was hypothesized by one of the articles that is out there. There are like 33 total articles that come up if you search bendopnea in PubMed. <laughs> um, several of them are case reports. Um, all of them have been clicked now. They're all purple. But yeah, that, that's that's another theory. And it's, it's just sort of interesting. Certainly, there seems to be some component of preload contributing. Right. Okay. So taking a step back to recap where we are to this point, bendopnea means feeling short of breath when you bend over. Thank God for that name. So easy to remember. And the reason that it happens, or rather characterizing people in whom it happens, it happens most frequently in patients who are in a cold and wet hemodynamic profile of CHF, which is to say they have a low cardiac index and they already have a high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. We know that bending over in pretty much everybody will raise your right and left atrial pressures or your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, but we see that in these patients who are already high, already have a high wedge pressure and already have a low cardiac index, they're more likely to get bendopnea, and they're also more likely to get orthopnea. So likely at this point, we think we don't know necessarily why exactly what the physiology is exactly of bending over causing the high wedge pressures, but we know that the people who get short of breath and dyspneic are the people who are already cold and wet. Excellent. That makes sense. So I don't know, do you guys think it'd be valuable to talk for a minute about why once they have that elevated LVDP, they, they feel short of breath? I don't know, maybe review something that we've already talked about. <laughs> Yes, I was about to put you on the spot, Tony. <laughs> Can you give us some spaced repetition, evidence-based learning about why dyspnea would be caused by elevated LVEDP? Uh, uh, believe me, I would love to. So uh, we talked about this in episode eight. In that episode, as a reminder, um, we talked about it in the context of myocardial ischemia, but the same principles apply in heart failure where you have an elevated LDV LVEDP. And what we talked about in that episode is that when you have that increase in LVEDP, that pressure is transmitted to the left atrium and also to the pulmonary venous system. And this leads to the interstitial congestion. And even if you don't see that congestion on a chest x-ray, right, it, it, there's going to be some degree of interstitial congestion when you have increased pressures in the pulmonary venous system. And then once you have that interstitial congestion, that leads to dyspnea. And at least from what I understand, there remains uncertainty about whether that is related more to decreased lung compliance or activated activation of the pulmonary C fibers or something else. But I, I have to assume that the mechanism here is the same as the mechanism that we talked about uh, back in that, that prior episode. But if elevated wedge is the key and an already elevated wedge going up even further with bending over is what leads to bendopnea. It makes you wonder why, though, 
warm and wet patients yeah. don't get bendopnea like the well, cold and wet ones do. Yeah, why isn't it the thing that makes them tip over? Yeah, I mean, it, uh. it, yeah. <laughs> it, it it would suggest that there's something beyond um, the backwards, you know, of LV right. to LA to pulmonary venous system, but rather there's also a contribution um, from LV to aorta and beyond. And and I've always downplayed the idea that you know the decreased cardiac output leads to dyspnea, but there may be a role there, and it, this may be a demonstration of that role. Hannah, was there any difference yeah. in the levels in which the wedge rose between those two cardiac index profiles? Yeah, in this paper, they didn't stratify um, the hemodynamics by what the profiles were um, and what the filling pressures were. But interestingly, there is some information about how often these things happen in decompensated versus compensated heart failure. So I guess, it, yeah, is there is there a clinical significance to finding bend apnea in your patient? Absolutely, because then in the morning, you can tell the team that the patient had bend apnea <laughs> and you want an echo. Um, the patient got an echo. Uh, and t- to be clear, had other reasons to get the echo as well. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it is really interesting. 6.8% of the general population was found to have bendopnea. So a later study went through and looked at a general population without heart failure. The prevalence is about 15 to 20% in compensated heart failure and 48% in decompensated heart failure. There's a good amount and there's more coming out about information about whether or not this has a prognostic significance. Specifically, there's an association with greater six-month mortality and readmissions in patients who have bendopnea. And then for patients who have bendopnea, so they had a set of heart failure patients essentially symptom monitor for orthopnea and bendopnea. And when orthopnea and bendopnea were severe, they had sensitivity of 81% and specificity of 73% for this is an acute heart failure exacerbation, you should come in. Interestingly, it has about the same odds ratio for congestive heart failure as paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. So PND has an odds ratio of 2.42, and bendopnea has an odds ratio of 2.59 for heart failure. It just, it seems to me like, you know, I think there's, all of us have had this just PND and orthopnea, PND and orthopnea, yeah. PND, you just ask that, like they come, they, they're, they're a pair, but it really seems like from what you're telling us, it should be a trio, PND, orthopnea, and bendopnea. And, you know, I think that there's still very much an evolving literature and there's seems to be a little bit of debate about what exactly the prognostic significance oh, sure. of, of it is. But am I going to now consider asking this question to patients, especially, I think, at patients in which I'm trying to think about, is this heart failure or is this an acute decompensation? I'm, I'm adding it to the armamentarium, as it were. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think any of us hear a patient say that they have orthopnea. You know, in our language, that's not what they're going to say, but we don't hear that and say, well, that's it. I've made my diagnosis of heart failure. We use it as a clue. And I think the same is here, is is true here, where if someone reports uh, bendopnea, I might have my spidey sense tingling. Okay, maybe I should um, consider whether or not they have decompensated heart failure. Totally. And just to bring it up, there are other conditions in which um, bendopnea has been noted to occur at this oh, point. Oh, God, so, you're making it harder. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there is like that 6.8%. <laughs> well, I, well, I was going to say, I've had patients 
in pulmonary clinic tell me it, I'm short of breath when I bend over <laughs> and yeah. they don't have, you know, and like, it's, it seems like it's more of a pulmonary issue in those patients. And so you're telling us you didn't float a wedge uh, or float a swan to get a wedge <laughs> pressure in them uh, when they told you that, come on. Well, yeah. So interestingly, there is another set. There's actually a couple other organs inside the thorax <laughs> other than the heart. And, and one of them, Avi, I think you deal with occasionally, which is the lung. So um, there's really only case reports about this. I can't really find some good sort of prospective studies on it. But there's a case report of ABPA, uh, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, presenting specifically as bendopnea without any evidence of cardiac disease. And then there's also some reports of PAH or uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension and OSA or obstructive sleep apnea, all presenting specifically with bendopnea. And so there are kind of a variety of thoughts about why this might occur. And ultimately, there's not a, a ton of really helpful physiologic data yet, but I am, I am hopeful that someone will start floating swans or something <laughs> in, in patients who are bending over. I want to VQ while the patient is bending over. <laughs> So just to circle back to the the name issue that we kind of opened with, can we now like attach opnea to like any activity that makes somebody short of breath? <laughs> can we propose that? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that old joke, like, well, if it makes you short of breath, stop doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, just stop tying your shoes. But, but I, one of the things that I really enjoyed is that in the very early, and by very early, I do mean uh, eight years ago, literature on this topic. <laughs> No, seven years ago, there um, was some debate about the name. So it was initially called flexodyspnea in the uh, um, original case case report. And then later on, another there was like a letter to the editor that was like, well, we should, if we're going to do sort of this Greek naming suffix, we should also do campopnea, which would be the Greek prefix. And the authors point out, and I very much agree, that Patients understand the word better if you say bend apnea um, and explain that that means bit short of breath when you're bending over. And I'll point out that this is the only reason that we are having this conversation now is because uh, some intern had said this to me at a prior date and I remembered it at three in the morning. Yeah, yeah to be clear, I understand bend apnea a lot more than camped apnea. Like that, it actually makes sense. You're like, I camped even with that. <laughs> yeah, I actually want to circle back. There was one paper that I loved from this, which was evolution of bendopnea from during admission in patients with acute decompensated heart failure. So they took 60 patients who had bendopnea on the day that they presented with an acute decompensation of heart failure, and then they retested them at discharge. 40 of the patients still had bendopnea, but about two-thirds of that group had a longer time to become dyspneic. Uh, and so the thought was maybe there is essentially less time for overload to occur, for that fluid to essentially accumulate in the LA, and then as Tony, as you said, kind of back up into the pulmonary vasculature. So, so on your rounds, on your daily rounds, in, you know, in addition to auscultating for an S3, maybe get them out of the bed, ask them to bend over and say, how do you feel today? Yeah, daily that... <laughs> daily bendopnea, time it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and then we'll examine for Kaiser Fleischer rings. Oh, it's All been right. 45 seconds. It's not bendopnea. It took 45 seconds. To get <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, 31 seconds apparently is all you need to say it's not bendopnea. Yeah. 
All right, Hannah, you got any take-home points for us? Uh, Yeah, so bendopnea exists. What it is is shortness of breath when people bend over. And what it tells you is, based on the physiologic data we have right now, probably there's some evidence of elevated left ventricular filling pressures or possibly some kind of pulmonary cause going on. can happen in a lot of different disease states, but specifically it can be a fairly helpful marker in combination with orthopnea for whether there's an acute decompensation of heart failure going on. And it occurs most often in the initial studies in patients who were quote unquote cold and wet. So high um, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and low cardiac index. That's awesome. All right. Well, that's all we've got for today's episode. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And as a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We're excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.